Good morning, good morning. How are you? Good, good, good. A couple of enthusiastic people. That's great. Uh, welcome to our online audience as well. We're super glad that you're there and a part of us. Hey, get your Bible on your phone or a paper Bible if you have one and get to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at chapter 6 and referring to chapter 13 here in a few minutes. It is name tag Sunday, which means you're supposed to have a name tag on that has your name and answering the question of the day, which today the question is, what makes you laugh? And so uh, I see some of you are stiff-necked, stubborn people and uh, don't have name tags or you just didn't catch on the way in. There wasn't really much signage there, but I have on mine talking animals. Now, uh, talking animals crack me up and my wife mocks me for this. If I walk by and the TV has a talking animal commercial, I can't stop staring. Cat videos, all of it. But just to be clear, people made a face at me today. Like, I thought I almost heard somebody say, he knows animals can't talk, right? <laughs> so uh, you have sufficiently discouraged me. So I'm going to put it there. I know animals can't talk. That's what makes it funny when they do. <laughs> Hey, if you're new here, we're super glad that you're here. We have a gift for you at the red tent in the lobby. So stop by there on your way out, meet people. And uh, it is community group launch time. Next Sunday, today we wrap up our study in Nehemiah on restoration. And next Sunday, we're kicking off what I think will be a pivotal six weeks as God points us into our future together. It's through the book of Ephesians and it's called Made for More. And we want you, we're, I'm asking you personally to be in a group discussion for the entire six weeks of that six weeks. I have written discussion group material, and we have groups that are ready to host you. And then on Wednesday nights, for those of you who say, well, there's not really a time that works for me or whatever, on Wednesday nights, I will be hosting tables of groups in here. So you can just show up here. Wednesday nights at 6, we'll have coffee bar open, and at 6.30, we'll start at our tables. And we'll put you at tables with a table facilitator or couple. And uh, so whether you get to somebody's home, get to a group that's already on the list, all you have to do is stop by that table in the lobby and you will be able to see all the options available to you and make a decision that's, uh, that's open to you or that fits your schedule. And uh, do me a solid. It would be my dream that no one who considers this their church home would avoid these six weeks of discussions uh, our relationships are really important, and these conversations are going to be really important, okay? So that's, that's my ask of you today, and uh, I hope you'll consider it. Now, we've been in this book of Nehemiah talking about uh, how God restores the human soul. In this case, it is a narrative of how he restored the city of Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity, and uh, they, were, they came back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, they were worshiping God. They had been returned to their relationship with God, but their walls were destroyed and their gates were burned with fire, which is, an, which is a perfect uh, template for how the Holy Spirit wants to build us. Because for many of us, many, many Christians have had their relationship with God restored. Man, I know my sin's forgiven. Jesus died for me on the cross. I love God. I have a relationship with God, but my life is a bit messy. Uh, I'm a hot mess. I have some chaos in my life and we're... Uh, we're seeing how God is teaching us through the book of Nehemiah that this is a walls issue, an issue of boundary and identity. 
and then also a gates issue with access and egress for the enemy and what you traffic in and out of your life. So today we're finishing this series and the series has matched what we think God is doing for us as a church. We are in, if you're new to Summit, we're in a restoration process. We've been through a very painful uh, year and a half and um, we believe God's restoring us. Our church is about 43 years old and we have more than our fair share of pain in that history. And here's what we think God is doing for us as a church and what he wants to do for us as individuals and families. He wants to, he wants to reclaim our history. That is to reclaim our origin story. And so here's what he did for them in Jerusalem. Hey, you are the people of God. You are the, you're the chosen ones. And so he's restoring their origin story. He's, he's reclaiming that in them. And we've been reclaiming that as a church and we've been reclaiming that in our lives. Listen, we are made in the image of God. He has a desire for us to be with God, to know God, to live with God and for God. He's reclaiming that for us. Secondly, he's redeeming our pain. And as a church, God has been redeeming the pain that we have been through as a church. He wants to do that in our lives as well. If you've been through significant pain, I want you to know God wants to not just uh, erase it from your mind or not just heal your wound. He wants to redeem it, which is to say he wants to use it forward. He wants to make you stronger because of your pain. He wants to redeem your pain. He wants that which the enemy thought he stole to be restored and multiplied and so this is a great thing, okay? Now we're getting to the third R today as we wrap up the series, and that is he wants to restore our purpose. He wants to restore us to that mission which he had in mind when he made us. And he's doing that for us as a church, and I believe he wants to do that in your life. And so today's a very important conversation. I'm gonna move pretty quickly, but there's just a few big ideas here that are really important to you, and I hope that you'll lean into them. Because here's what I know about you. God wants to reclaim your origin story as an image bearer made for God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and that he wants to redeem all of your pain. He wants to heal you. He wants to redeem it. He wants to use it forward. And, man, he wants you living your life on purpose with him, with intentionality, with freedom, with joy, with life. And this is a decision you must make as you partner with his work in your life. So uh, we're in Nehemiah 6, and we're going to read uh, the first 16 verses. So that's a little bit lengthy reading, but I think you can handle it. Uh, you impress me as people of maturity and intellect and moderate beauty. And so uh, I think you can do this, okay? It is our custom to stand for the reading of God's word if you're willing and able to do that. And here we go, Nehemiah chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat and Tobiah, by the way, if you're new to the series, these guys are perfect demonstrations of the activity of the enemy or of Satan in our lives. These are enemies of the great work of God. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, praise God. Though up to that time I had not yet set the doors in the gates... Sanballat and Gershom sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me this message. 
And each time I gave the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent sent his aide to me with the same message yet again. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. An unsealed letter is an open letter. You've seen these before on big pages of a newspaper where somebody writes an open letter. It's for the whole public to hear. They're going to post this letter all around Jerusalem. They want everyone to hear this letter. It is reported among the nations, and Gershom says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will go back to the king. Come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his own life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him to do so. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name and discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. That is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks so much. Okay, this is Good News, Bad News Day. Uh, And so I'm going to give you the good news, which is also a little bit of bad news. It's some sobering news, but it's great news. Okay, and here it is. You can live as restored as you choose to. You can live as restored as you choose to. Now, uh, this is, I should have put that big idea in, you know, in Christ. So let me just be clear. Uh, without God, no, you cannot live as restored as you choose to. That's why we need a Savior, and we have uh, no capacity to overcome our own sin. We are, we are depraved to the core. Our heart is deceit and sick. And so we need a redeemer. So the point of this restoration process is that he has come. Christ has nailed your condemnation to the cross. The Holy Spirit has come to empower you. He has come to revolutionize your life. And in Christ, please hear this. You're not hearing this enough. In Christ, you can live as restored as you choose to in Christ. Okay, now here's the truth. I'm as physically fit as I choose to be. Okay, so you're like, okay, Mr. Husky guy, you're going to sit here and talk to us about you can do whatever you choose to do. Yes, it is true. I should be smaller than I am, and I should be in a little better shape. Uh, but let's pick at your life a little bit, okay? But po- the point is, <laughs> the point is you can say, you know, I can be as restored as I choose to be, and clearly I don't choose to be all that restored in my physical body. Jay Leno said one time he had bodybuilders on his show, and at the end of that, he said, you know, I would give anything to have a body like that, except diet and exercise. 
and I'm not talking about just self-discipline. I'm talking about the re restoring work of God in you, the abiding presence of God by the Holy Spirit and the power of his word. So let's just get this straight. You can, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, by the word of God that is implanted in your heart, you can live as restored as you choose to. This is really important because we have this notion, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and I'm just a mess and I'll always be a mess uh, here's what 1 John says, I write this to you, brothers and sisters, that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ, the Holy One of God. So the, the expectation is you're not going to be as good at sin as you used to be, and you're going to actually become overcoming of it by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, by the Word of God in you. You can do this with Christ in you. There's going to be two issues that come up today. One is the relationships you have. And one is the gates that are now to be rebuilt. You notice at the start of the, of the chapter, the wall is rebuilt now. Man, they have security. That wall, is, that wall is high. That wall is two and a half miles around. That wall is thick, built out of the rubble, built out of the stones. Like, okay, we have the wall secure. I, my identity in Christ is there. Now, let's talk about the gates. That's where we're going to get in just a moment. The gates, remember, are access and egress. So two things are going to come up today. Your relationships and your gates. Now, uh, I believe that your restoration, like I'm saying, you can live out your purpose. You now, God is restoring your purpose. And in Christ, by his power, by his presence, by his word, you are invited to live like a restored person. And that purpose, okay, this is one of those big rocks you need to hear. That purpose flows out of a deeply anchored soul and a well-fed spirit. A deeply anchored soul and a well-fed spirit. Now, I could talk for a while about the difference between your soul and your spirit. I don't want to take the time to do that. So if you want to just make those the same, you can. Uh, but here's the thing. To be at the soul level, deeply anchored in Christ. To be deeply anchored with God. For your soul to be connected to God. This is where my identity comes from. This is where my hope comes from. Anything that happens to my life gets filtered through this connection I have to God at the soul level like it is the center of my being. This is the first thing is that your soul truly is deeply connected to God. And second, that your spirit remains well-informed by the revelation of the Holy Spirit in your life and by the word of God that you keep digesting and putting in your life, this is really critical because if your spirit is uninformed, if your spirit is ill-informed, if your spirit is lied to, you're gonna navigate your life not like a restored person. You're gonna navigate your life like a slave. You're gonna navigate your life like a fool. So I need to have my soul deeply, profoundly connected to God, so brutally so that Jesus would say, if you don't love God, if you don't hate your family compared to your love for God, like if you, if you love anything or anyone with this kind of connection I'm talking about, then you're not getting there. Truly, God wants to be the center of your being. You will not find the power to live like a restored person if you're not deeply connected to God at the soul level. That is where it all begins. And then that you have a regular diet 
of informing your spirit with the word of God, with revelation from God, with the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, you have got to stay well informed, well fed. I told uh, our growth track one, one week, like when you're a spiritual baby, the scripture says in I think it's Hebrews chapter 7, that the milk of the word is good for you. Like you can just drink milk. But milk is for infants. And I don't mind if you're a new Christian, if you're new at your faith, to just suck on the bottle and drink the milk of God's word. This is where we all start as infants. But if I have to part the hairs on your mustache to get the nipple in your mouth, we have a problem. And so it's time for you to start feeding yourself. Okay? So your ability to walk with God like a restored person is going to come from those two places. It's going to come from a deeply connected soul to God and a well-fed spirit. Pick up that fork, and you have to, yeah, listen, you have to walk with God every day. This empowers us, and you don't have to do the stupid things you've always done. You don't have to let that habit keep controlling you. He gives you the empowerment to live like a transformed person. It is possible. I want you to stop thinking it's impossible. I want you to stop thinking because that is a lie. Okay, so there's this thing in 1 Thessalonians 5 where God says, I want you to not quench the work of the Spirit. I don't want you to quench the work of the Spirit. And uh, there was some instruction prior to that that's really helpful, but here's the instruction. Don't quench the work of the Spirit. Now, the word quench, it, it can apply two ways. One is to eliminate a thirst, and the other is to put out a fire. Both would be what quenching is, is to eliminate a thirst or put out a fire. Now, when it comes to us living like restored people, this is the deal. We need to not quench this activity of the Spirit in our life, which is to say we need to not eliminate our thirst for Him, and we need to not put out the fire. So here's going to be the big challenge in your daily routine life. Staying thirsty for more of God and keeping the fire of God in your bones. This is what I mean by living from the core. There's a hair floating through the air. You didn't see that. I'm not losing my mind. I don't think animals talk, and I'm not just grabbing the air. Okay, listen. Uh, I don't remember where I was now. <laughs> you, you, listen, you have to anchor down. So uh, do not satisfy your thirst. That this, you've got a thirst in you. God put it in you. You, you are thirsty for God. Not, a lot of people don't know God and they don't recognize that's what that is, but that's what that is. And when you become alive again, when God has given new birth to you, when the Spirit of God moves in you, He sets a fire in there and you need to not let that fire go out. So, okay, so here's the, I'm going to tell you how, what the enemy tries to do to keep you from living like a transformed person. It's right here in Nehemiah 6. Here's what he does. First is he, he tries to negotiate with you. If you look in there, uh, he says right there around verse uh, 3, I think it is, or verse 2, Samballot sent me this message saying, come, let us meet together in one of the village is, villages in the plain of Ono. Ono means strength, wealth, or power. So what's going on here is the enemy's going to say to you, hey, 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 you don't need to become a fanatic about God. Come on, let's negotiate. Let's get you to lean on some power and some wealth and some strength of your own. There's a shortcut here. He did the same thing with Jesus when he was in the wilderness for 40 days. He'd been fasting, and the enemy says to him, hey, you're hungry, bro. 
uh, why don't you turn these stones into bread and then eat? Uh, because, and then remember Jesus answered with scripture every time, man does not live by bread alone. But the negotiation then, hey, you need a crowd to believe in you. Go up to the temple, throw yourself off, and everybody will go crazy for you. Like these temptations for shortcuts. And here's what you and I do. I used to have a friend named Alan. He had this phrase he used all the time. He would say, I can make this work. And, you know, a lot of times he couldn't make it work. But he would say that all the time. I can make this work. And this is what you do. This is what the enemy is trying to tell you. You can, you can make this work. Uh, you don't have to get, you don't have to be crazy for God. You don't have to be obedient to God. You don't have to go the long path of obedience and discipleship with God. There's a shortcut here. And if you take it, it's going to be instant gratification. Okay, this is the first way. He tries to negotiate with you a shortcut to get what you know God wants you to have, but he wants you to have a shortcut of idolatry to get there. I hope I'm making sense. I'm going to zip through these. Uh, the second is he decides to, uh, this is down at verse 5, is he, uh, he wants to incriminate you. This is verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sambalot sends this open letter, and this open letter is an accusation. The Bible calls Satan the great accuser, and it says, in fact, that he is before God accusing the saints day and night. So what is he trying to do here in this Nehemiah thing? He's trying to turn people against Nehemiah by accusing him of wanting to ignore the king and set up his own kingdom. I mean, he is building a fortress wall. He is securing the gates, and there's an accusation. You're just doing this so you can rebel against the king, and then you'll be able to have sovereignty again. And so what the enemy wants to do is accuse you. This is the short story of this. Accuse you, both directly to your heart and mind and also with the people around you to bring accusation against you. Now, here's the thing. We have to always tell the truth and shame the devil. These accusations have some grain of truth to them. Okay, when the enemy tries to tell you, you lust all the time. You're a lust junkie. You're just a pervert. There's an element of truth there because you know, perhaps in your case, that your sexuality drive is, is intense and you have a hard time uh, governing that. And so he's not making this up. He's using real stuff in your life. But man, he wants to accuse you and he wants to convict you. He wants to condemn you. And so here's one of the, a little test you can use to know whether this is conviction by the Holy Spirit talking to me about myself or whether this is the enemy trying to condemn me? Does what I'm hearing make me feel ashamed? Does what I'm hearing make me feel uh, doomed? Does it make me feel condemned? Then that's coming from the enemy. Those are accusations that are designed to disable you. When the Holy Spirit deals with you, he will give you conviction about some area of your life, but you know in your heart, man, he's telling me the truth and he wants me to be stronger. He wants me to be more whole. He wants me to be more free. And that's how you can tell. But the enemy is going to try to negotiate with you. Hey, let's take some shortcuts because you can get what you want faster. And he's going to incriminate you by telling you that you suck, that you're uh, untrustworthy, that God is sick and tired of you. Almost every Christian I've ever talked to worries deep in their bones that God is sick and tired of me because I can't seem to get this right. Okay, the last one is he wants to isolate and intimidate you. Finally, there at the end of uh, chapter 6 there, somewhere, uh, there it is, about verse 10. He starts talking about uh, this invitation. Hey, there's enemies that are coming for you, so why don't you come hang out in the temple with me? Let's meet privately because there's people coming. Come into the temple and meet with me privately. 
Nehemiah is not a priest. He doesn't qualify to go into that part of the temple. This is a this is a, a desire to isolate him, intimidate him, and then have another accusation to use against him. The point here I want you to hear is that the enemy wants to isolate you. His strategy has always been the same, divide and conquer. He does it in marriages. He does it in friendships. He does it in churches. He wants to divide you, conquer you. He wants to isolate you. The end game of him is to get you so isolated that you start believing this, okay? You might have heard this in your own head. Nobody understands me. Nobody has the same battle I have. It's this isolation, and his end goal there is to drive you ultimately to suicide. That you so despair of your isolation and your aloneness that you despair of life itself. These are his strategies. He's going to keep using them. And so what happens? What needs to happen? I need to be fortified. This is what the walls are for. I need my identity in Christ. And now we get to these gates because he started off in chapter 6. Uh, the walls are finished, but these gates are undone. So I want to remind you about the gates in chapter 2. Do you remember in chapter 2, Nehemiah takes his first journey through uh, the rubble, and he talks about some gates. He talks about the valley gate, and he talks about the water gate, and he talks about the jackal's well, and then he talks about the dung gate, which happens to be my favorite just because I'm that kind of weird. Uh, but these gates all have history to them. They are the places that you would egress or ingress to take care of some specific needs, to get water, to carry out the trash, to carry out debris, okay? So what the, what the Lord wants to talk to you about here for this last couple minutes is that you must manage your gates so that you are deciding what comes in and what gets carried out. If you don't manage your gates well, you will not live like a restored person. The truth is, you are restored. The Holy Spirit lives in you. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have everything you need through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, the Word being the person of Jesus and the written Word. You have everything you need to live like a transformed person if you do your job, which is to manage your gates. What gets in, what gets carried out, what do I hold on to? I think that too many uh, Christians are living in slavery when they don't have to. And it's legit. Like the spiritual warfare going on in your life is mega intense and it's uh, intimidating and it's hard. And the reason it's going on is because of what your gate management has allowed to occur, what you haven't hauled out to the trash, what you haven't rejected, and what you've allowed to establish inside the gates. You're secure if you manage the gates. So uh, there's two areas I want to talk to you about that, that really are the rest of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and in particular, then the gates are chapter 13 as we get to that. Okay, so this is going to go a lot faster than it just sounded like. Two focused keys for us to live like transformed people. One, we must ruthlessly eliminate unhealthy relationships. Through the rest of chapter 6, there's a description of these people who've been allowed to set up camp inside the temple. There are people who hate God living in the temple because they're a friend of somebody else or a cousin to somebody else. Then you get to chapter 7, 
And then you get to chapter 13. People are intermarrying with people who have no relationship with God and no appreciation for God. People are letting their children have relationships that are destroying them. Here's the deal. Uh, As a youth pastor, I would shout this from the housetops. Show me your friends, students, and I will show you your future. And this is the truth about you and me as well. Now, here's the deal. I'm not saying don't have any relationships with unhealthy people. That would require you to leave planet Earth. And I want you to be my friend. Don't, I'm not saying don't have relationships with unhealthy people. That's, that's what we're here for. God is bringing them into your life. We talk about the Oikos principle. That's your household. God is bringing unhealthy people. God is bringing people who don't know him into your life so that you can have a relationship with them and help them see the goodness of God for them. So I'm not saying don't have relationships with unhealthy people. I'm saying don't have unhealthy relationships. A couple weeks ago, um, I got some emails from a couple of people talking about, as I talked about, if you don't have, if you don't, if you don't have a relationship in the family, then you're going to be missing strength. And I had some people say, well, what if my family is a distorted, broken mess and they're dysfunctional and they break, they hurt me and they're horrible for me? I wasn't talking about your birth family and I'm not talking about allowing unhealthy relationships in your life. This is so critical. Why are we making a big deal about six weeks of Made for More and being in in community for those six weeks? Why is community groups a pivotal part of our strategy to help you flourish in your life? Because you need healthy relationships in your life and you must eliminate the unhealthy ones. So much of our life is tainted by, distorted by, ruined by people who are bringing unhealthy relationships into our lives and we tolerate it and we drink it and, we, and we don't feel empowered or authorized to eliminate that relationship and it is a strategy to destroy you. So, uh, man, you've got to eliminate unhealthy relationships from your life. One simple gauge, I hate the rule of thumb now that I know where that came from. Uh, if you don't know where it came from, look it up. I don't want to take the time to tell you about it. I've already used it. Okay, the guiding principle of your relationships. If this relationship is taking you further from God, if this relationship is toxifying your heart, if this relationship is messing with your core beliefs, if this relationship where if this relationship is an ungodly one, and rather than being the influencer, you are the influence E, then it's time to put a wall there. It's time to close the gate to that relationship. Um, we could talk about this for hours. I see so many head nods. You know this is true. And um, our lives in so many ways, God wired us for this. He wired us for relationships. Your life at the end of your life will probably turn out to be largely accurately described by the people who were in it at certain parts of your life that God brought to your life, who who shaped and fueled and contributed to you. It'll also be defined by the people who tried to destroy you, who tried to handicap you, who who messed with you. Okay, so I think you get the point. Unhealthy relationships cannot stay in your life. Unhealthy people can, but the relationship has to be healthy. And if it cannot be healthy, it needs a wall. 
Okay, now the second thing we've got to do is we've got to manage our gates. So, uh, man, chapter 13, if you, if you read chapter 7 and then go to chapter 13, there's a whole lot of problems that were happening. Nehemiah gets so ticked off, like, I'm never going to do this to you. I just want to bow to you as your pastor. I'm never going to do this to you. He starts yanking people's hair out. He grabs people by the beard and yanks their beard out. Okay, he's ticked off. And I'll never do that to you. Uh, never. What is he so upset about? He's upset because the people of God who are supposed to be living in restored beauty, freedom, and power continue to sabotage themselves by the things they're doing. Here's just a list. If you read chapter 13, you'll see the list. In fact, I uh, flipped over to chapter 13 and just noted at the bottom. Please be patient with me while I am clumsy and awkward. Um, that's not the one I wanted. I want this one. They, they were allowing, uh, foreigners. Okay. This isn't about ethnicity. This is about faith. They were giving their hearts to people of no faith. They were giving their children to relationships with no faith. They were letting people who had no faith in the temple in these ways to live there, to do these things, they were not honoring what God had called them to, which is to be equally yoked, to have to give their heart away to people who are of faith. So they had that issue. They had, uh, they had, they had Satan living in the temple storeroom because the storeroom was empty because they had abandoned the tithe. The tithe is a commitment from God. People say it's an Old Testament law. It's not. It's an Old Testament principle. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek 800 years before the law was even written. It's not a law, it's a principle that God gets the first fruits of your life. They had stopped doing that. So they aren't giving God any of their income. And the, the design was there was a storehouse in the temple so people could bring their tithe of their crops and their food and their whatever and store it in the temple and it would take care of the priests. That's how they were sustained so that the work of God could go on. And so they had quit tithing. And the storeroom's so empty that now they've got a guy who hates God living in that room in the temple because they were disobedient financially. They had abandoned the Sabbath. God had told them, hey, this one day of the week, and we have a new principle of the Sabbath. You can read Hebrews chapter 12 about this, that our Sabbath now is in the person of Jesus. But the point is, they were told by God, honor the Sabbath. And here's what God wanted to do. Hey, here's what I want you to do. Uh, Chick-fil-A is a great example of this because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays out of the principle of take a day of rest. They outperform fast food chains by the hundreds, even though they have one less day a week to do business, one less day a week of income, because they're practicing this for God. Okay, I can just, so the point of the people of God honoring the Sabbath is, hey, I don't have to work seven days a week to meet my financial needs. I don't have to work seven days a week to take care of my family because I trust God. And I demonstrate that trust by resting. Now, in the New Testament reality of that is that our rest is in Jesus. We have Sabbath 365 days a year. We have Sabbath every day because we rest in Christ. But not only are they not observing the Sabbath themselves, they're opening the gates in the morning and letting all these people, vendors, come into town and they go shopping and so uh, this gets Nehemiah very ticked, and he reestablishes observance of the Sabbath. What does all that mean? 
I just pray I haven't lost you. You have a responsibility for you. You want to change your marriage? You want to change your home? Want to change your neighborhood? Want to change your city? Take out a Sharpie, draw a circle around yourself, and fix everything in that circle. And this is the gates. You must manage the gates of your life. That means I'm going to be deeply connected to God. I'm going to be rooted in God at the soul level. I'm going to keep informing my spirit by the word of God and the spirit of God. And I'm going to walk in obedience to God, whether anybody else does or not. I'm going to regulate what gets into my heart. And I'm going to, reg- I'm going to kick out, haul out the trash uh, for what got in there. I am going to manage my gates so that me, Joshua said, as for me and my house, you serve whoever you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let me just tell you, right here, right here, I'm serving Jesus. Right here, I've been redeemed by the Lord. I, I belong to the Christ. I belong to no other. I am his. I was bought with a price. I'm not my own. He purchased me with the precious blood of Jesus, not silver and gold, but with the blood of God himself. I belong to him. Therefore, my gates are secure. My wall is built and nothing comes in that's not of him. And everything that got in here that's not of him gets hauled out for trash. And I got plenty of trash from all my life, you know, BC before Christ. I've got plenty of stuff going on. I got people trying to dump trash in my city and it gets hauled out. It's got to get hauled out. It's got to be, you got to use those gates, which is play offense and defense. I got to use the gates to protect me from the evil one. And I've got to open the gates and haul the trash out. And I need to keep feeding my soul. What gets in the gate? Man, the presence of God. I have this thing. Uh, James was asking me, uh, what did you learn in the 21 days of prayer? We just finished 21 days of prayer. If you're new here, today was the last day's 21. He said, what did God say to you during the 21 days of prayer? And here's my thing. I'm so hungry for God, so thirsty for him. And you would think that you could satiate your hunger for God. And what I'm finding is the more I love him, the more I want him. And uh, what I'm learning is I need to make some more steps to make more room for me to satisfy my thirst only with God and for me to keep the fire burning. So uh, that's screen time on my phone, on the big uh, thing on my wall. I think I have one on every wall in my house. Uh, You know, uh, what I'm looking at, what I'm listening to. Can I just say this to you and then I'm going to wrap this up. If you say, I can't read very well. I I can't stand to read. I hate reading. I don't retain anything I read. Then get the Bible on your phone and listen to it. You've got, to, you've got to anchor your soul deeply in God, and you've got to keep well fed. And it's a journey. The deeper the damage that was done in your life, the longer this journey takes, and it's okay. This is not designed for you to feel guilty because you still have a struggle in your life. This is designed to let you know there's hope. And the restoring work of God in your life is going to restore the purpose in your life. And you know what you were made for? You were made for one reason, to know and love God. That is why God made you, to know him and love him. And then you join him because the world fell. You join him in the mission. But you essentially were made for God. You were made for him. And until you know him and and satisfy the hungers of your soul with him, You're going to keep being hungry and wondering why you can't be satisfied.
you're going to keep falling into ditches and wonder, how did that ditch get there? You're going to keep, in fact, (laughs) you'll start digging more ditches. You were made to walk with God. All right, so here's how we're going to finish today. I've got two responses for you. First, I want you to work a game plan today. I don't want you to say, hey, in the next few weeks, I'm going to make a game plan for how to really root my soul in God, how to not quench. I'm going to make a plan for how to stay thirsty and on fire. I want you to make that plan today. Not next week, not tomorrow. Today, I'm asking you to carve out some time, sometime today before you go to bed tonight, and think about a plan. How am I going to manage my gates so that I stay deeply connected to God and well-fed? What am I going to specifically do? I believe the Holy Spirit will help you if, you if you sit down and take just a few moments to do this. Secondly, it's always our second re- response is bless your oikos. Pe- God's bringing people right in front of you in your life, neighbors, friends, coworkers, uh, hobby participants, whatever they are. Some of them you might not even like. We say it this way, there are 8 to 15 people who God is strategically and supernaturally bringing right in front of your life because he wants you to love them the way he does and he wants you to help them know that God can be trusted, that he's for them. So here's how we're going to finish. We're going to take communion together. You should have been given a uh, communion on your way in. And if you weren't, and uh, you can jump up, there's people with communion trays standing in the back. Just jump up and grab one. It won't distract anybody. If you're online, grab a piece of bread or a cup of coffee, um, and you can, um, you can symbolically join this with us. You might not have communion elements at your house. The reason we want to finish with communion today is because all of our hope is right here. This is what I love about communion. We hold our entire faith in our hands when we take communion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this together. And we practice open communion at Summit Church. What that means is you don't have to be a member of the church to take communion with us. All we ask is that you do this to honor Jesus Christ. If you're not at the place in your journey of faith where you go, I'm doing this unto God, then just relax and watch the people around you worship in this way. Do not feel awkward. Uh, The scripture says we don't want you to eat or drink in an unworthy manner. That means without faith. So if this means nothing to you, just relax and watch people around you do it. But here's what I love. Jesus said, take and eat. This is the night he's betrayed. He broke bread, said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, Jesus freaked a whole bunch of people out. He said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. People ran. This is a wafer, okay? You're about to find out how tasteless it is. It's a symbol. This wafer I hold in my hand and you hold in yours is not the literal body of Jesus. But this thing we're doing is so sacred to God and so rich with spiritual meaning and power. We feast on Jesus who is the bread of life. God became flesh, gave himself to us that we would enjoy him. We would feed on him. He is our sustenance. So let's pray for the bread and then we'll take it and then we'll walk through the cup. Lord, thank you for the body of Jesus. May you nourish our body with this, but far more than that, may you awaken our spirit to whole new ways in which we can feed 
on you, King Jesus. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and you are the word of God. Bless this to us. Bless us with you. Give us more of Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Let's take the bread. And then if you can open this cup without splashing it on yourself or others. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. There's the power word, covenant. God has shed his blood to purchase our redemption. If the devil tries to tell you you're condemned, tell him about the blood of Jesus that was shed for your redemption. It's a fixed part of the universe. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. His blood was shed. His blood washes us white as snow. Would you stand with me for this part and let's pray over the cup and then take it together. We are so thankful for the shed blood of Jesus, which washes away our sin. We're thankful that when we fail, your word says this is written so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus the Christ. Your blood speaks a better word. We place our faith in the covenant of God given to us through the shed blood of Jesus. And we say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the reward for his suffering. Be exalted, King Jesus, as we celebrate our redemption through your blood. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the cup.